We are still in Hebrews chapter 11, so if you'll look there, I'm going to read for us some of the verses we looked at last week, but are part of this section, so we'll read from verse 13 down through verse 22. Verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. The last few weeks, we've seen Abel worship by faith, Enoch walk by faith, Noah work by faith, Abraham wait by faith. What we have in today's text takes us to another level, even another dimension. These people not only lived by faith, they died by faith. How much faith does it take to die? I'm not sure, but I suspect it takes all you have. And that's especially so when death arrives before your God-given hopes have been fulfilled. But if hopes are God-given, won't they be fulfilled? Yes, they certainly will be fulfilled, but not perhaps before you take your last breath and your heart beats for the final time. I'd go further. If you're a Jesus follower, your hopes will not be fulfilled until, not all of them anyway, until you take your last breath and your heart beats that final time. The man of faith, George Mueller, once said, and if you've never read anything about or by George Mueller, you ought to do this, once said that God had answered any and all of his prayers that he ever seriously prayed. That's a remarkable claim from an altogether remarkable man. Yet Mueller spent years and years praying and went to his grave still praying for two men of his acquaintance to be converted, and they had not been, and were not. On the day he took his last breath, his faith had still not been rewarded. He did not receive the things promised, to use our author's language from verse 13. Mueller had seen and welcomed, that's still sticking to the language of verse 13, the conversion of these men, but he'd seen it from a distance. He'd welcomed their conversion, greeted it, but it hadn't come. 
Mueller once said of those men, I hope in God. I pray on and look yet for the answer. They're not converted yet, but they will be. By faith he waited, and he was still waiting on the day he died, and they had not been converted. But he was still trusting on the day he died. And by the way, both of those men came to faith shortly after that. If we're going to be trusting on the day we die, we must fully be fully persuaded that the end of our time here is not the end of us. I think a lot of Christians are not fully persuaded. A missionary couple returned to the States from Africa aboard ship 1909. They had a famous fellow traveler with them. Teddy Roosevelt was coming back from his African safari that had been on the front pages of every newspaper in the country for weeks. When the ship finally docked, the president walked down the gangplank and there were thousands of people gathered to welcome him. They treated him like a hero. They adored him. They hung on his every word. By the time the missionaries were allowed to take the gangplank sometime later, the crowds had dispersed and no one said a single word to them. They had spent years in Africa, sometimes in unimaginable conditions, working to help the poor and to bring people to faith. They had sacrificed so much and no one cared. The husband couldn't get it out of his mind. He just kept going over it and he was angry and depressed. His wife tried to cheer him. She tried to talk sense to him, but he couldn't hear what she was saying. They had rented a small, bare apartment in a poor part of the city, and he went into the bedroom and shut the door, a broken man. But an hour or so later, he came out visibly changed. He was calm. He was hopeful. His wife asked what had happened. He said that he had been in that room complaining to God. They had sacrificed so much But when they came home, no one even noticed. Yet when the president, who hadn't sacrificed anything, returned from a vacation of all things, everyone noticed. They welcomed him home like a hero. And then God said to him these simple words that changed everything. But you're not home yet. That's the point of the last phrase in verse 13. They admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. They saw themselves as citizens of another country, a heavenly country where justice is done, where everyone is valued, where to live is to love and to love is to live. They were not surprised that things are not the way they're supposed to be. They hadn't come home yet. The word the NIV renders admitted is routinely translated translated confessed elsewhere, saying, I am an alien and a stranger was an act of confession for these believers. It helped them persevere when things got hard. Things will be better when I get home. It enabled them to live by different customs in a society that was rife with selfishness and immorality. In my country, we do things differently. The confession, I am an alien and a stranger here, can make a powerful difference in a believer's life. 
Verse 14 says, people who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. Their lives show, the word is used of bringing something to light or of revealing something hidden, making something invisible visible. Their lives show that they're looking for a country of their own. So what does your life show? What does your life show that you're looking for? What does it reveal about you? When serious poker players sit down at a table, they watch for tells in their opponents. Tells, the little mannerisms, adjusting glasses, tapping the cards on the table, running one's hand through one's hair that might reveal whether or not their opponent is bluffing. The faithful Christ follower's life always has tells. And someone who knows what to look for can pick up on them. For example, the man or woman of faith doesn't agonize over the small stuff. This isn't home. They pray, they sing, they're hopeful, they're generous. That is a huge tell. They are generous because they know their Heavenly Father will meet their needs. And His house is plenty. And that's home. Look at verse 15. If they had been thinking of that would maybe be better translated if they had been remembering the country they had left. They would have had opportunity to return. When a person believes in Jesus and the conversion process begins, and by the way, believing in Jesus is not the end, but the beginning of conversion. It's important that he or she soon renounces life without Jesus and rejects the way he or she lived before coming to faith. For some, that means renouncing a life that was wild with drugs and drinking and sexual immorality. For others, it means renouncing a much more settled life but that was self-centered in which they pursued the things that made them happy. But there are others who were good people before they came to faith. They kept all the rules. They went to church. What about them? We can think that the good person has nothing to change, but the good person must renounce the without Jesus life just as much as the immoral person. Now, that doesn't mean giving up everything one did before coming to faith. Perhaps a guy loved to fish before he came to faith. He'll probably fish after, but there'll be a difference. He'll fish with Jesus. Perhaps he went to church before coming to faith. He'll go to church after, but there'll be a difference. This time, he'll do it with Jesus. He will abandon the without Jesus life and renounce anything from that life, sexual immorality, for example, or the greedy acquisition of things, anything that Jesus himself cannot do, will not do. If a person doesn't renounce the without Jesus life, he'll keep remembering it thinking about it until he's drawn back into it, at least to some degree. It's like there's a homing device in him that must be deactivated. We each have a return to sender code that needs to be scratched off when we come to faith. I heard something through the mail recently and received it just a week or so ago, but it didn't fit the appliance I bought it for. It's the wrong thing. And so I sent it back in the same packaging, just taped it back up, and Karen wrote on the label, and I took it to the post office, and the clerk there noticed a barcode that was on the original label, and he blacked it out. 
saying that if he didn't do that, it might come back to me. We enter the new life with a barcode that says, send me back to my old life. Renouncing the without Jesus life, confessing ourselves aliens and strangers here is how we black out the return code to the old life. And it's essential that each of us do that. The man who wrote the hymn that we sing fairly often, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, returned to his old life after having written that hymn. He didn't black out the code. We do that by renouncing the without Jesus life. I don't want any part of that. By confessing ourselves aliens and strangers on the earth. Now, it's not enough to leave the old life. We must replace it. We must have a new destination for which we're headed. So in verse 16, we read that these faith-filled people longed for a better country. The word translated long is used only two other times in the New Testament. Interestingly, it's translated differently each time it's used in the New International Version. Once it's translated as set one's heart on. The other time it's translated as be eager for. In that context, actually for money. These faithful people long for their own country the way a person playing the lottery longs for the jackpot. God loves it when his people are like that. He's proud of them. Now, I want you to imagine a situation with me. This could really happen. Imagine a guy who's been attending Lockwood for a few months. He's been out on the golf course all afternoon playing in a tournament. He's been drinking a little with his buddies. And as they've gone on, he's been laughing at their off-colored jokes, their racial slurs, sharing in their gossip. Yeah, guys gossip too. In fact, sometimes they gossip more than some of the women. The tournament's over. He and his buddies are in the parking lot. They're putting their clubs back in their SUV. When I swing into the parking place next to them and get out of my car and start unloading my clubs. Now, I know this guy. I really like him. I enjoy being around him, but I know what he's like. So when he sees me and says, Shane, and starts to tell all his buddies that I'm his pastor, that he goes to Lockwood Church, that he's learned so much from me, how do you think I'll feel? I'm going to cringe a little bit. It's not that I don't like the guy, I really do. And I'm absolutely delighted he's coming to Lockwood. But he's embarrassing. God can feel that way too. He can apparently be ashamed of some of his people. Not that he doesn't love them. Or want what's best for them. But he's never ashamed of those who set their hearts on his country. And I'm being the kind of people who can be at home there. They aren't perfect, far from it. But he is so proud of them. When those people say, the Father of Jesus is my God, he doesn't cringe, he applauds. He says, that's my boy, that's my girl. He's glad to be known as their God. The people in verses 13 through 16 died without seeing their hope fulfilled. But Abraham, in verse 17, experienced something even more difficult than that. He didn't just die before his hopes were realized. 
He lived to see his hopes die, or so it seemed. If you live by faith, this may be the most important thing I'm going to say this morning, so get this. If you live by faith, something similar will happen to you. You will hear from God. You will obey him. You will experience the joy and confidence that comes from resting in his will. And then suddenly everything you know will be turned upside down. The husband God gave you, no question about it, God gave him to you, will leave for another woman. The child for whom you prayed and waited and took years to conceive will contract a frightening illness. The better job for which you prayed and for which you joyfully left your old job suddenly ends when your company merges with a competitor and your department's downsized. Through your study of the scripture, you've heard God say to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You welcome that promise into your life. By the way, on Wednesday nights, we're going over Hebrews. We'll be talking about how you do that. How do you welcome a promise into your life? You welcome that into your life, but a few years later, you go through the dark night of the soul, as John of the Cross put it. You enter the dark wood, as some older believers termed the experience, and you have no sense of God's presence at all. You cry to him, but he does not answer. You feel totally abandoned by God, all alone without any comfort or any hope. What happens to faith when the word God himself gave you seems to be withdrawn or even contradicted? That's what happened to Abraham. It was the greatest test he ever endured. The NIV says that God tested Abraham, and that's true. Genesis spells that out. But the Greek text of verse 17 does not include the word God. It merely says, Abraham being tested. The 16th century preacher Joseph Hall identified 10 major tests in Abraham's life. The one mentioned in our text being the climax of them all. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. What a test. Not only was Isaac his son, his only son, the one he loved, even adored, he was also the key to all of God's promises. Without Isaac, the promises meant absolutely nothing. Without Isaac, Abraham left Ur for nothing, lived in tents, decades for nothing. It was a dreadful test of Abraham's faith. We think, well, if God told me to sacrifice my child or grandchild, it wouldn't be a test at all. I might check myself into the hospital, but I would know that God doesn't want us to do something like that. That's true, you would know that. If such an idea came to our minds, we'd reject it out of hand. But Abraham was not us. He had come from a land where people did not know the Lord. They knew nothing about the Lord. He arrived in a land where people really did sacrifice their children to the gods. Abraham didn't have the law, the prophets. He didn't have the New Testament to instruct him. His history with God, we sometimes forget, was relatively short. He knew only that the same God who called him and blessed him and made promises to him was now telling him to sacrifice his son. But to do so was to kill his own happiness. The name Isaac means 
laughter. To obey meant that Abraham would silence his laughter forever. How would he ever look Sarah in the face again? To obey meant saying goodbye to all felicity, all lightheartedness, all happiness, all domestic tranquility forever. It was a terrible test. But why test us at all? Doesn't God already know whether or not we'll pass the test? Yes, he does. But we do not. Let me suggest three ways, and there are probably many, many others, in which God's tests are helpful to us. First, they refine and purify our faith. Listen to Peter. Now for a little while, you, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. It is a huge thing for a believer, huge thing for a believer to know my faith is genuine. A lot of people go through life and they're never quite sure. One of the things tests do is prove to us that our faith is genuine. Secondly, God's tests develop character. James says the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Tests are indispensable for developing Christ-like character. And thirdly, God's tests may even protect us from sinning. To keep me from becoming conceited, said the Apostle Paul, There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. God's tests can be very difficult, but they're always for our good. And in a world like ours, faith gets tested. It's bound to. Abraham's did. So did the faith of almost every other hero in the Bible. And your faith will be tested too. You could almost say that if your faith isn't tested, it isn't faith. Abraham passed this test in part, I think, because his faith had been tested before. The nine times that we know of, probably many times besides those, he had passed some of those other tests. Do you realize this? But he hadn't passed them all. And yet each one served its purpose, served to grow him in faith, even when he failed. Notice what Abraham did in this situation. Verse 19, Abraham reasoned, Note that word, that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did, literally in a parable. This is, the, the life of Isaac was a parable. Your life is a parable too that other people read. He did receive Isaac back from death. People frequently take faith and they contrast it with reason. Here we learn that faith is not at odds with reason. In fact, faith employs reason as a dear servant and friend. When people ask, well, is it more logical to act on faith or on reason? They've presented us with a false dilemma. The contrast is not between faith and reason, but between faith and unbelief. There's no conflict between faith and reason. Reason is a servant and a very capable one, very strong one. But reason is always in the employ of another. In this case, in the employ of faith or in the employ of unbelief. The real question or questions should be, first, 
Which master is reason currently serving? Faith or unbelief? And second, is reason doing good work? Is the reasoning itself sound? Christians need to be able to reason, and they need to do it well. In the trial of his life, Abraham did not abandon faith for reason. He didn't retreat from reason into some kind of blind faith. But he reasoned from faith. And he reasoned that God could and would raise his son from the dead in order to keep his word. The book of Genesis actually hints at that when Abraham took leave of his household staff to make that final leg of the trip before offering up his son. He told them, stay here while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. How did he arrive at that conclusion? Through the reasoning of faith. The result was a heritage of faith that ran in Abraham's family for generations Where did Isaac learn how to look into the future with confident expectation? He learned it from his dad, Abraham, and he passed it on to his son, Jacob. When Jacob, verse 21, was dying, he could look right past death and see the fulfillment of his hopes. And from Jacob, verse 22, Joseph learned to see past the end. The end was in view, but he could see past it into a new beginning. These men were not perfect. They failed many times, and their faith faltered more than once. But they came back each time and trusted God, and he was not ashamed to be called their God. Their failures did not make God ashamed. Not while they were longing for his country. God isn't ashamed of you because you fall down. Now what can we take out of this and use in our lives? Let me mention three things. First, we can dare to speak the confession that we are aliens and strangers here. In times when we get really comfortable, hearing that confession becomes rare. That confession reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. Our real treasures are there. Our customs originate from there. We don't have to fit in here. We don't have to keep up with the Joneses here. Why should we? This is their home. It's not ours. When Christians stop confessing that they are aliens and strangers here, something always happens. They grow quiet in their confession that Jesus is Lord. Those two things are linked. So find ways to confess your alien status. Make yourself a green card. Alien resident. Keep in your wallet. Make a sign that says, are we there yet? And underneath it write, no. Or write out Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there and put it somewhere where you'll see it all the time. Ask God to give you other creative ways to remind yourself to make the confession, I am an alien and a stranger here. But by the grace of God, a citizen and a friend in God's kingdom. 
Secondly, make sure you've blacked out the return code to your old life. If you don't, you're going to get sent back. Rid yourself of anything that draws you away from Christ and pulls you back into your old ways. And don't be afraid that if you do that, you won't have a life. There are a million things for you to do and learn and a million interesting people for you to meet. There's a life that God has for you that's better than the one you've left. Ask Jesus to help you find it. Third, and last, when you find yourself going in over and over something in your mind that causes you to give up hope, ask yourself whether your reason is in the employ of faith or in the employ of unbelief. Don't stop reasoning. Use reason. Use it carefully and use it well. Just use it within the context of confidence in God's word. He's more than ready to help you with that if you'll just ask him. Let's pray. I pray, Lord, that you will take the things that were said this morning and the words from the scriptures and place them where they need to be in our lives and hearts. To one, one thing, and to another, another thing. But Lord, would you speak to us? For Jesus' sake. Amen.